Okay, I've been asked to talk about uh, nutritional states and welfare regimes. Um, I guess the take-home from this, so that you can fall asleep and, uh, and come re- resurface in 20 minutes' time, is that governments matter in matters of nutritional health. So uh, with that in mind, um, I'll go into a talk that will beg more questions than it answers. Uh, The focus is going to be on adult obesity and industrialised countries and among the industrialised countries, European ones most specifically, and um, because in industrialised countries the issue of undernutrition is so, so small and hasn't been changing so, so much in recent times um, to, to, to the extent that it can be tractable in terms of looking at um, different kinds of, of state. So, um, a few bottom line things before I get moving. Um, axes upon which welfare is negotiated and contested in government. Well, there's always the debate about how much social security there should be, how much markets should be regulated, um, how much markets should be deregulated, how much redistribution there should be in society, how, how much uh, uh, rugged individualism should be uh, promoted and championed. This is not something that will be resolved anytime soon, is likely to be ever resolved, but it's the kind of contestation that happens within countries um, across, uh, across history. Uh, talking about welfare models, um, just, just by way of starting, uh, starting things, um, there are a number of different ways one can think about welfare models, and in Europe there's a number of characterizations. Um, conservative corporatist nations like France, uh, Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, where there's great reliance on the family for security and less reliance on the state. Countries like, uh, like the United Kingdom that have become uh, much more marketized in recent times where um, the welfare state has been progressively uh, dismantled. And then we have our social democratic Nordic nations where uh, the welfare state is part of the, the pillar um, of society. I gave a talk in Stockholm a year ago and I said, how many of you are happy to pay tax, your, the levels of tax you pay? And almost everybody's hand went up. And if I ask the same question in Australia, I'm not sure I'd get the same, get the same answer, um, or, or in the UK, for example. <clears throat> the focus on uh, uh, obesity, of course, obesity rates are going up. Um, in most places, I'm pre- uh, anticipated to, to carry on going up in, in most countries. There are a few countries that are predicting uh, uh, slight declines, like Malta and the Netherlands, but generally the picture is towards increasing obesity rates. So to characterize the scheme, I'm going to use the scheme of Lars Esping Andersen, um, who had uh, uh, developed a welfare regime typology, which was social democratic, conservative, and liberal. Now, of course, there are other schemes, and countries can wander in and out of the relative proportion uh, uh, to which they engage in decommodification, that is, the extent to which um, uh, uh, there's, there's redistribution, the extent to which transfers go back to poorest people um, and, and, and so on. Of course, different governments will create different uh, exact formulations of a particular typology. That's just to say, um, if you are um, uh, Ireland or the United Kingdom, the government will change the extent to which transfers move from higher to lower. So let's just accept this is a kind of false trichotomy, if you will, but one that can be useful for thinking about these, these relationships. So in Scandinavia, is maximal decommodification. In Anglo-Saxon countries, there's minimal decommodification. The target groups in Scandinavia, the entire society, 
um, in Anglo-Saxon countries is means-tested towards, towards low-income households. The transfers in Scandinavian countries the highest possible. In Anglo-Saxon countries, they're modest. Um, and the rights are based on universalism in Scandinavia and means tests in, in Anglo-Saxon countries, as I've already said. So the state market relationship in Scandinavia, the primary focus is on the state. In conservative countries, uh, the market with state support. And in liberal countries, the primary focus on the market. So that's the cartoon version of it. Now to the talk itself. I'm going to talk about how... Um, Government is involved in a number of these, uh, a number of key issues. Um, and what are the tensions there? Who should regulate food? I think if you went back to pre-World War II, then food was a central uh, a pillar in, in, in governance. That is, being able to assure food security in countries that might not have uh, adequate food security uh, across, uh, across all time. Um, it was formerly an essential public function. It's something that slipped out of that, has become marketized, but there is a debate around that. Then secondly, um, the crossover in keystone services. What kinds of services? And in relation to obesity, there's a number of different keystone governmental services um, that uh, should be brought to bear. Food supply, health, social care, education, all of these have something to, to play. And then finally, what is the role of government in... in Looking at the, in, in, in thinking about the relationships between obesity, inequality, and insecurity. So, um, in recent decades, we know that food systems have become much more systematized. We have new products, processes, and intensification of, of, of food production. We have new distribution patterns and logistics that ensure that just in time um, economics can operate at the supermarket. So barcodes will, uh, as they're scanned, will show how things are depleted off the shelf and things are put back as, as they're depleted. So you never see a shortage of toilet rolls, for example, because, you know, there's always, you know, uh, uh, the knowledge of how much is being lost where in different places. And, you know, network mathematics is central to being able to, uh, uh, to, be able to put those things in place. The rise of genetic modification of foods, which is an extension of other kinds of, of, of technological modification of foodstuffs, um, and the, uh, the rise of supply chain management. And underpinning a lot of this, the primacy of marketing, of brands, of price, um, that alter the relationship between nutrients and consumption, uh, because people don't just buy foods for nutrition, they buy them because certain food foods may be cooler than others to different parts of society. Okay, penetration of new markets um, has led to... Uh, to um, to uh, uh, the emergence of so-called obesogenic environments. Modern food systems and socioeconomic forces have led to market globalization, technological change in work and leisure, urbanization, rising incomes, cuts in real food prices. Retailers move from stores, small stores to supermarkets to online shopping in many places, um, leading to what I see as being the, the primal obesogenic environment. And Boyd Swinburne is in the middle of it there, as you can see. He used to be at Deakin in Geelong, and I still think of Geelong as being the primal obesogenic environment, because when you drive through there, it is a working city um, that has relied on the motor car in most recent times. The motor industry is in decline. You have a demography which is skewed towards lower uh, socioeconomic status, Fast food is available everywhere, and, uh, and so um, um, the, the modern food system 
and socioeconomic forces collide in the production of obesity. And of course, in Geelong now, most recently, of course, you get McDonald's subsidising sports and all that kind of thing, uh, making things confused. But of course, you know, Geelong is taking a grip of its own problem at the moment. I, you know, that's, that's, that's clear to say. The penetration of the of 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 of, of food markets. We can just look at the top 10 retailers in 2011 and um, all of these um, are most significantly food retailers, although they may retail other things as well. But you look at Walmart and they operate in 28 different countries. Calfour in France, 33 countries. Tesco in the UK, 13 countries. Metro, 33 countries. Um, Aldi, Kroger, Costco, Schwarz, all of them have uh, you know, globalised uh, their operations, which does not just mean that the supermarkets are more global. It's actually the, the whole system of supply of food from the beginning to the end is modified in the countries that take those on. Okay, how to regulate the widespread distribution of cheap energy-dense foods? How to reduce fat and sugar by Taxation. If we take the Simpson and Raubenheimer uh, um, uh, Raubenheimer uh, uh, protein leverage model, you know, it seems to me that we might also be thinking in other terms rather than disincentivising fat and sugar, and thinking about incentivising protein, which may be, you know, an alternative way to think. Is never taxation is popular except in, in Scandinavia. Thinking about the most obvious way to to tax, there have been a number of studies that have looked at uh, looked at. Uh, uh, what, um, uh, how you could regulate um, the uh, less healthy aspects of, of, of diets. And this is one model from the UK that looks at 20% tax on sugar sweetened drinks for the UK. <coughs> we look at this chart, there's, we can see that sweetened drinks um, contribute <coughs> significant amounts of dietary energy uh, to children between the ages of 16, uh, to adults, people between the ages of 16 and 29 years, less so uh, across, uh, across uh, 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 stages later in life. And sugar is, in, in these kinds of forms, is very easily, it could be very easily avoided because um, the sugar is relatively um, uh, uh, non-satiating and uh, if you displaced it with water, well, most people would not, would not notice. Okay, in, terms of, in terms of what the effects of taxation would be, it should be a good thing. Um, but it tends to reduce obesity. If you look at thirds of income in these groups, it would reduce uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, obesity and overweight among younger adults mostly, but also would reduce the uh, prevalence of obesity, most importantly, among the wealthiest of individuals within a particular society. So mildly regressive in terms, of, in, terms of, in terms of its effects. And nobody wants a regressive tax. If the, thing, the point about taxation is to, is to regulate the, you know, the, 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 the issues that, that need to be regulated, in this case obesity, which is seen in higher uh, proportion among the, the poorer individuals in society. What about the health effects of food taxation more generally? Now, now the modelling for the UK, Mitten et al. have looked at a number of different models. First of all, saturated fat um, has been something that was tried in, in, in Denmark. They tried it for a year. They had all kinds of issues that arose with that. Uh, the taxation was, 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 uh, was, was um, uh, revoked, and, and uh, now they continue to analyse the data from, uh, from that, uh, from that uh, national experiment. Uh, looking at uh, saturated tax, uh, 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 saturated fat tax, 
uh, in the UK, it would um, reduce uh, the levels of mortality from uh, ischemic heart disease and mortality from stroke, for example, quite minimally. Um, it would probably not change calories consumed. Taxation based on more foods that contain, uh, that contain uh, saturated fat as opposed to things like butter directly thinking about the things that contain saturated fat, the effects would be stronger. Um, if you tax even more foods um, and can identify what healthy foods might be and tax the unhealthy ones, then the effects might be, might be even stronger. So it's difficult to separate healthy from unhealthy foods. There are many grey areas. So the issue of taxation remains fraught. But taxation is one thing that governments can clearly do. This is part of their mandate to decide how to incentivize and disincentivize um, different, uh, uh, different aspects of society, uh, different aspects of economic uh, uh, activity. Uh, what about services and government and an overlap of, of, of keystone services? Um, we'll move to our good friend, the spaghetti diagram, the uh, foresight obesity model. The thing is, nobody gets beyond this. And I was one of 45 people that was involved in the modelling of this in the societal zone way out in Siberia into the far, into the far left of this model. And uh, um, it's often taken as being the keystone point at which uh, obesity started to become complex. They started to talk about complexity. But actually, the reality is the complexity in the foresight system was already um, something that was, that was, that was deep, deeply embedded. By the time tackling obesity, for, foresight came out in 2007, there had been one, two, three, four, five other projects that had a systems focus previous to that. There was clear um, vision inside the Labour administration at that time that we should be thinking about systems complexity in government. That in fact the foresight model isn't something that emerged spontaneously out of science. It was very carefully guided by the very intelligent public servants who were overseeing the foresight process. You look at the scoping documents early on. Um, I have all the documentation if anybody wants to share it. You look at the way they talk about de-siloing obesity because it sits in many different places. Alongside that, there was the issue of de-siloing government because there were many government departments that didn't talk to each other. So there was a larger agenda um, around around foresight. And the point that the, the, the foresight process was about long-term thinking about problems that couldn't be solved in, short term, uh, in, in the short term of government. So looking uh, to a 50-year vision, that's what everybody who was involved in foresight was charged to do. Think 50 years ahead um, rather than thinking about, about, uh, about, the, uh, about the shorter term. So you know, um, the idea of complexity was already something that uh, the Cabinet Office and Downing Street were uh, keen to incorporate into government thinking. Now, Vernon Bogdanov has written about joined-up government, something that the Blair administration in particular was very keen on. And I've written quite recently on foresight obesity as an instrument of government modernization. So while I was part of the foresight process, I was also taking field notes as an anthropologist looking at the process of foresight. Um, one of the maps that came out was of different government departments and how they map onto the foresight map. And what was clear was actually very few 
government departments talk to each other. Don't need to know what these different blobs mean in terms of colours, but there's Department of Transport, there's Department of the, 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 uh, DEFRA, the, the Food and Agriculture Department, there's the Education Department, there's Health Department, and so on, and they don't map onto each other. So the formation of cross-departmental committee for obesity was one of the major outcomes from this to get the different departments to talk to each other, to form, to form, to form bridges. Another thing that's embedded in the foresight model, again, which gets absolutely zero attention is that um, foresight the policy scenarios that were developed by foresight uh, um, were designed to be relatively future proof in that they're prepared for changes in welfare regime they don't offer one way of thinking about obesity um, although you know, very much scenario four was taken on subsequently by, by the change of government a market liberal approach there's the idealist one which is a consumer driven model that is um, enlightened consumers will drive the market by their demand for healthy goods. Um, then there's a the social democratic one, which is, which is that you take on social responsibility. There's a the conservative one, which is, which is more embedded in a, 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 a mainline um, German, French, Italian kind, uh, kind of model. So foresight obesities was ready to respond in any way according to, uh, according to, to regime. So... Um, Embedded in the Foresight Report um, was also the idea of what different policy scenarios would do to obesity. This is just opinion. So it's opinion of actually about 100 people, no more. Um, uh, if you follow the consumer-driven model, it should say more or less static in terms of uh, uh, obesity trajectories. If you follow the social democratic model, it would do much better. The transfers should reduce uh, levels of obesity, population obesity, childhood obesity, and socioeconomic differences in obesity. Um, the conservative one, again, should stay more or less the same, and the market liberal one should be driving obesity onwards and upwards. Uh, what's changed has been a change of government, and the change of government has moved towards um, thinking about responsibility deals for the, for, 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 for the industry and, uh, uh, and, and, and voluntary controls, which I can make a slide, a slide aside, not slide aside to bankers. Self-regulation of banking is a brilliant way of regulating banking, as we know. Uh, last piece of this picture, which is the relationships between obesity, inequality, and insecurity. A well-known picture that we know that across countries where there are higher levels of inequality, there's higher levels of obesity, we're more or less with a few outliers, uh, which are always interesting, Greece, Italy, Switzerland, those are the places that should really be studied ethnographically because those are the places where other things are, are very clearly uh, going on. Um, but at, uh, uh, if we're to characterise welfare regimes, inequality and welfare provision kind of you know, talk to each other. That there are countries like um, the uh, Anglo countries, United Kingdom, United States, Australia, Ireland, high levels of inequality, lower levels of, of, of welfare provision. Countries like the Scandinavian countries, lower inequality, higher, higher levels of, of, of welfare provision. Taxation is a major instrument for reducing inequality. If we look at um, what the Gini coefficients are for Denmark and Sweden, uh, before taxation, they're actually not that much smaller than they are for the UK and the United States. By the time you impose a, a swinging taxation 
in the two Nordic countries, you come down to uh, Gini coefficients that are far, far lower than they are in the UK and the United States. So again, one thing that countries can do in terms of inequality is um, they can uh, taxation is an instrument for, uh, for, 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 uh, for, for bringing down inequality. So if it's inequality and obesity, then uh, reducing inequality in a society ought to perhaps reduce levels of inequality um, in obesity. Or does it? To the last part. Obesity and inequality by welfare regime in Europe. I'm focusing on the European Union because um, there's good data on inequality um, in, uh, in obesity rates. And I can look at welfare regimes across Europe using um, an analysis I carried out about two weeks ago to see whether this is the case. Um, we know there's a lot of inequality in obesity rates, uh, but it does it also vary by, uh, by, by welfare regime. Um, I did some work with Abner Offer, the economist, uh, which showed that welfare regimes did actually, uh, 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 obesity did vary by welfare regime across countries. Cheap energy-dense food is important. It's less so than economic insecurity. Economic inequality is less important in our model than economic insecurity. And of economic insecurity, skills, representation, income security are the most important things. That is, do you have transferable skills if you lose your job? Um, um, do you have unionization so, so your, your case can be argued if there are issues at work? And um, if you lose your job, are you going to be able to get through the next six months or year uh, before the next job comes along? And then dependency and security, health and security, and unemployment security are the most important. That is, state uh, health provision does have uh, a, a role to play in all of this. Okay, very briefly, and, and, and uh, coming towards the end, these countries that show the levels of obesity, um, Nordic, continental Europe, and Anglo-Saxon countries, and the ratio of obesity rates by the highest quartile to lowest quartile by, by, by education. And just by eyeballing this, you can see that actually inequalities in obesity rates and, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, by, by welfare regimes doesn't vary um, according to whether it's continental Europe, uh, Nordic, or, 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 or actually lower in Anglo-Saxon countries. This is for males. For females, pretty much the same thing. When we want to um, summarize this data, okay, small sample sizes, but inevitably so, because um, countries um, are not dissolving as regularly as they did in the 1990s. So we, the sample size is dependent on the, uh, the nature of the world of state. Um, Scotland didn't play ball, so, so it isn't a separate country yet. Uh, but if we just try and take this, this, this trichotomization, uh, obesity rates in Anglo-Saxon uh, Anglo countries higher than in uh, uh, continental or Nordic countries. Uh, inequality in, in obesity rates actually highest in the, in the Nordic and continental countries. That is actually reducing inequality overall. It won't reduce inequality in obesity rates, which is, which is you know, there's something more than income incentivization that, will, that, 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 that is driving this. In terms of food prices, most expensive Big Mac index um, in uh, Nordic countries, less so in, uh, in continental countries, and cheapest in Anglo-Saxon countries. Inequalities, we know, highest Gini coefficients in Anglo-Saxon countries, continental countries, small sample size. But also looking at the proportion of the population that works more than 40 hours a week. Highest in um, Anglo-Saxon countries and lowest in the Nordic countries. In terms of unionization, the proportion of the population that is, uh, that, 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 that is unionized, much higher in the Nordic countries and continental countries, much lower in Anglo-Saxon countries. I'm getting to the, to the point very shortly. Um, um, which is to examine how these, 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 
markers of insecurity um, uh, work in relation to in, in, in relation to obesity rates for males and females. If we just look uh, take some simple correlations between um, uh, obesity rates for males and females using the same data set, we can say that in the countries where people work longer hours per week, um, there, is, there are significantly higher levels of, of obesity. In the countries where there are higher levels of state health care, higher provision of state health care, then there are lower rates of obesity among women. In the places where there is High, where there are higher rates of unionization, and again, there are low rates of obesity. Two more slides. Um, this settles differently among males and females. Uh, we look at females, this is just putting everything into the model for females, work, state healthcare representation. What pops out at the end as being most significant is long work hours for females being most associated with obesity. When we look at males, um, the picture is. Not quite the same. Um, the highest rates of obesity are among uh, uh, in, in the countries that are that are least unionised. So we have two trajectories towards obesity production: long work hours for females and and uh, uh, representation for males, and insecurity in respect of of, of, of representation, the lack of it. So. <clears throat> When we just look at Europe, there's no direct regime effect, but regimes are, as I've said, kind of a little bit floppy. Um, but regimes vary in economic and educational inequality. Inequality in obesity rates within country can't be understood through cross-national differences in inequality and insecurity. So welfare policies don't seem to cut inequalities in obesity. I don't know the answer to this, um, but I think it's something that uh, bears better data uh, bigger data uh, and, and, and more detailed investigation. And finally, the forms of insecurity associated with obesity differ between men and women. Uh, for women, it's longer working hours. For men, it's representation in the workforce. Thank you. <laughs>